Take your Bibles, turn to 1 John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5, take time to worship through God's Word this morning. Most of us have, whether television or a movie or a show in which the climax of the show is a, uh, is a court scene, and then somebody is in the witness box and everything turns upside down the opposite of the way you thought it would be. Witnesses are important. They give credibility, they give verification to testimony of something that, is, uh, to, that has been done uh, to the facts in a court case. And throughout Scripture, God has provided uh, many witnesses to His truth, many authenticating witnesses that are credible to substantiate the truth about himself, about Christ, about Scripture, again, about creation. Uh, the author of uh, the book that we've been in for, for quite a while, the Apostle John, writes this letter as a testimony or as a witness himself bearing testimony to the authenticity or truth about Christ. If you have your Bibles in 1 John, just kind of hang a left for a minute and go to the very beginning of 1 John that reads, that which was from the beginning, again, he's giving testimony, he's bearing witness, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it. So John himself is a witness bearing testimony to the truth of Christ. He was an eyewitness, a firsthand eyewitness uh, to the life of Christ and the miracles. You know, one of the things uh, that is uh, not usually uh, received in court and I know this from watching too many episodes of Judge Judy, uh, so I have an expert uh, analysis here, is that the court rejects hearsay. They reject, well, my neighbor said. Well, I don't care what your neighbor said. They're not here. Well, I have, I have, a, no, you know, I have a document. Well, I don't care. They need to be here. So, so accurate testimony and accurate witness is important. John himself was an eyewitness to the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection. He is a living apostle, old in age, and he's giving this testimony. Now, the problem uh, is not uh, the evidence of who Christ is or whatever the nature is. The problem is not the evidence. In fact, you remember in Romans chapter 1, uh, I believe somewhere around verse 18, remember uh, it speaks about where Paul's giving this indictment of the sinfulness of humanity, of our sinful condition, and he talks about that we are without excuse. Remember that? But right before that, he talks about how the sinfulness of humanity, mankind, humankind, suppresses the truth. It's not that they're not exposed to the truth. It's not that they're not exposed to the witnesses that testify and authenticate the things of God, it, the problem is not the evidence. The problem is the unbelieving sinful heart. 
Remember uh, what Paul said in Second or in First uh, Corinthians two fourteen about how the natural man, or the the person who is without the spirit, he calls it the natural man, does not accept the things of the spirit. First Corinthians two fourteen, for they are foolishness or folly to him, and it says that he is not able to understand. He lacks the ability to understand the the spiritual truths because they are spiritually discerned. So this morning, we want to look at some evidence or witnesses uh, in our text today in verses 6 through 12. I'm not going to read it all at once up front. We'll read it as we walk along. But John the Apostle provides uh, witnesses to serve uh, this uh, rounding out of remember what is the purpose of why he's writing what he's writing. First John 5.13. Remember, this is the, the purpose of why he's writing this. We'll look at this next week. He says, I am writing these things to you who believe. So his audience, the people he's writing to are Christians, right? So that's when we read or study the book, we understand this is addressed to Christians. We need to put it in that, that framework. I'm writing these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, and here it is, that you may know, that you may have assurance, that you may have confidence, that you have eternal life. All sorts of different uh, witnesses that uh, John uses, even in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, remember, was written to unbelievers as an evangelistic uh, track, if you will, or a defense proving to uh, his readers that Jesus was the Son of God. That's different than what he's doing in 1 John. He's writing to those who have already accepted Christ as the Son of God. So this morning, we want to look at verses 6 through 12 in 1 John chapter 5, and I trust you have uh, the scriptures in some measure. Some of these we'll put on the screen, but uh, it's always good for you to follow along, whether you have it on your phone, tablet, or, uh, or actual Bible book uh, that you uh, can follow along. John gives us uh, six witnesses, and the title of the mo- this morning's message is Six Credible Witnesses. Um, I thought about playing with witness. I actually thought about calling it the real Jehovah's Witnesses, but... I thought if people saw that on YouTube, they might uh, think we went crazy or something. I thought about calling it Eyewitness News. I thought that was cute, but I did something boring. So six credible witnesses. My son always kids me that don't do those schlocky titles, Dad. Just keep it simple. So uh, I guess I was hearing his voice in my head. And again, he wants us to have confidence of the reality of what Jesus has done. We all need assurance, don't we? We all need confidence from time to time. Maybe, like me, every day, you need, you need reassurance that, you know, you belong to God and, and he belongs to you. So note with me these six witnesses. And th- this, is, uh, this uh, particular area of Scripture, you know, that uh, as, you know, I've read it and even read it before I dug down in it, I, I was kind of like, oh, man, this is really going to be complicated. Because when you read it, you're just like, okay, I mean, but really, what does it mean? Well, I think we can break it down, and I think it will be helpful to us. And so we want to do it just in a way that I think will be 
uh, a way that we can kind of structure uh, the study this morning with uh, around these six credible witnesses. All right, witness number one, we have, talking about Christians now, we have the witness of Jesus' baptism. We have the witness of Jesus' baptism. Look at verse 6, and notice in verse 6 and 8, notice the word water. Uh, This is he who came by water, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit uh, is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. Verse 7, for there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Water, what is, what, is, what is the witness here? And I believe that just rather than boring you with a lot of uh, comparisons, but most Bible teachers believe that this is a reference to the baptism of Jesus. This is what he's referencing about the word water here, that it's a reference to the baptism event of Jesus. Remember that in the Gospels when Jesus was baptized? Look over in your Bibles to Matthew 3. Matthew 3. And uh, let's note this about Jesus' baptism. Matthew chapter 3, and uh, around verse 16, we see uh, uh, scripture. Will, I'll just read part of it. And then it says that, and when Jesus was baptized, Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. Okay, it's a baptism by immersion. He went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. Okay, the Spirit is not a bird. It says figuratively the... the uh, uh, the uh, The presence was like a dove, okay, Uh, and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. What do we see here? The father gives his blessing on Jesus. The father gives his blessing and this word of affirming who Jesus is at at his baptism. This is the witness, okay? John, again, is the witness that we have the affirmation of the, of the Father at Jesus' baptism that this is my Son. This is the promised Messiah, the promised one of Scripture. Now, some might ask, uh, why does Jesus have to be baptized? Well, keep in mind here what this baptism was. Remember who was baptizing. Who was the one doing the baptizing and what was his purpose? It was John the Southern Baptist. No, John the Baptist, all right? I know that's corny, and I always do it. And you laugh. You give me a courtesy laugh. But it's John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. Now, he had a different purpose. He was calling Israel to repent. Remember, he was a forerunner. He was one proceeding ahead of Christ, announcing to repent for the Messiah is, is coming. And so this baptism of repentance, now we know that Jesus being sinless, he didn't have to repent of anything, did he? But it's part of his mission. Remember, probably the most favored name he used was Son of Man. It was part of his identity. He himself wasn't sinful, 
but he identified with those whom he came to save. So it was part of his identification, if you will, with those that he was calling to salvation. All right, just put that out there as that may be a little confusing sometimes. Secondly, not only do we have the witness of Jesus' baptism, but we have the witness of Jesus' crucifixion. The witness of Jesus' crucifixion. Look again at verse 6 and 8. I won't read it all, but just notice the word blood. You see that three different times, the word blood. Uh, in verse 6, the blood and, and, uh, uh, and that reference. Now that's a reference to the cross. That's a witness, just like the voice of the Father that affirmed Jesus at his baptism was, was tangible. We have that as a record of witness that this is the Son of God. And John says we have the witness of Jesus' crucifixion. The work of Jesus Christ as Messiah, as Savior, was initiated at his baptism and the work was completed by the shedding of blood, his death on the cross. Remember Jesus said in John 19.30, it is what? It is finished. We're not continuing to add to anything, okay? Uh, Jesus said it is finished. So when Christ Jesus died on the cross, he was the Father's sacrifice for the sin of those that would be saved. Uh, every, from every tongue, every tribe, every nation. He was the propitiation, as we learned uh, earlier in our study several weeks back. The Father at the crucifixion, I found this interesting as I went back and looked at some of the events. Uh, you don't need to turn to it. You may want to make a note in Matthew 27. But in the actual event of the crucifixion of Jesus, the Father provided several additional witnesses to the significance. This wasn't, you know, somebody being crucified in Jerusalem by Rome. It was a Roman form of capital punishment. That wasn't new. That happened all the time. But there was something significant, okay? It wasn't just anybody uh, being uh, nailed to some beams of wood. No, it was who was crucified to those beams of wood, all right? And, and God, in, in, in Matthew 27, uh, just adds some additional layers of the significance of this, uh, of this event. Uh, for, for example, and again, you may want to just make note of these. They're all in Matthew 27. It says in verse uh, 45 that darkness was across the land between noon and 3 p.m. There was darkness across the land. The Bible says in verse 51 that the curtain... In the sanctuary, in the temple, that was that separation between the Holy of Holies, that that curtain was split from top to bottom at the, at the crucifixion event. These are things that are happening simultaneously. It says also in verse 51 that there was an earthquake. There was an earthquake. Uh, it says also in verse 52 and 53 of Matthew 27 now, I find this really fascinating, and we don't really understand all that what happened, but I think it would be really amazing if we could go back and, and get a, a video of it. The Bible says in Matthew 27, verse 52 and 53, that these layers of witnesses, get this, the Bible says, not me making this up, it says that several Old Testament saints were resurrected 
and went into the city of Jerusalem testifying about Jesus Christ. Now, wouldn't that be wild? Wouldn't that be wild to, to, I mean, you know, your mind speculates, but pretty dramatic witnesses of the crucifixion. Why? Because it is a witness of significance of God's seal, of God's act of his son accomplishing the eternal work of salvation for those who would believe. Now, you know, false teachers, which in First John was a problem. We talked about that a few times in different ways. Uh, several uh, issues that were going on and why John was writing what he was writing. Uh, he was an apostle, and again, he, this was a letter that was kind of circulated in what in old Bible terms referred to as Asia Minor. Today, it's modern-day Turkey, same geography. There was multiple churches, and so this was a letter uh, that was being circulated around. Uh, unlike when Paul wrote to the f- church at Philippi, he wrote the f- book of Philippians, Ephesus, Ephesians, you get it. So one of the problems that is underlying John's writing is false teachers. And so one of the things that John is wanting to kind of again underscore is that uh, the idea that some were peddling that Jesus was just a man and he was adopted or became the son of God at baptism and God received him and then God abandoned him at the cross, okay? You say, well, well, that's odd. Well, not really in the sense that that's being taught today. That the idea that, the, uh, that Jesus became the Christ is something that a lot of false teachers even peddle today in saying that the Christ consciousness is something that we all can have the potential to attain to, all right? So John is just underscoring and noting the uniqueness and the witness and the testimony that Jesus Christ is uniquely the promised Old Testament scriptures testimony of Messiah sent by the Father to be the only unique sin bearer, to be that propitiation that satisfied God's wrath for our sins. You see, the cross, listen to me, the cross stands as that eternal witness to God's divine character, the divine origin, God's divine purpose, the divine victory God intended in Christ. It is an eternal witness. The cross proclaims that the king of heaven has come down, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5.21. The cross, the crucifixion, is a witness that gives every believer, every Christian, assurance that we belong to him and he belongs to us, that only the sovereign God could have this eternal transaction at the cross, trading my sin for his perfect life. It is a good deal. Best deal you'll ever get. There's a third witness. And that is the witness of the Holy Spirit. And we saw some of this in the baptism, but again, verse 6 and 8, three times 
the Spirit, the Spirit. Uh, in verse 7, that's what he's referring, that these three are in agreement. Uh, and, and the three in agreement is in Jewish law that it would take three to verify whether something was true or not. And Deuteronomy, the law. So, so the Spirit is the third witness that the Holy Spirit is given to every believer when you confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You can't do that in a genuine salvational aspect without the Holy Spirit. And this idea that we've got to chase after the Holy Spirit is false. The Holy Spirit, my friend, chases us. The Holy Spirit sent by God pursues us, chases us. The Holy Spirit has been given bearing witness that we belong to God. Verse 6, uh, if uh, you have, still have it, that this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood and the Spirit is the one who testifies, bears witness, because the Spirit is the truth. Why can we have confidence? Because the Holy Spirit sent by God doesn't lie. Jesus said in John 15, 26, speaking about the Holy Spirit, but when the Helper, another name used uh, by Jesus for the Holy Spirit, he calls him the Helper, And thank goodness, he helps me. He's the helper. But when the helper comes, Jesus says, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth. John 15, 26. He's called the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me. You see, that's why I'm always suspect in any type of religious gathering or meeting where there there is great emphasis upon, upon uh, worship or something, because if it does not focus on Jesus, is it spirit-filled worship? The Holy Spirit never draws focus to himself. He's always drawing attention and bearing witness to Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. He is the source. He, the Holy Spirit, is the revealer. That's why I said you, you know, you can't, even, you can't even confess and see, confess your sins and repent. You can't even begin that process unless the Holy Spirit opens your deadness and makes you alive. Jesus said in John 3, 3, that unless you're born again, you cannot see, you can't even see the kingdom of God. Holy Spirit is the revealer, especially about Jesus Christ. Think about the Spirit in the life of Jesus. The Holy Spirit was significant in Jesus' conception. The Spirit came upon Mary. Uh, The Spirit, we saw, was significant in in the baptism of Christ. Remember, even in the temptation of Jesus, it says the Spirit drove him to the wilderness. Remember that? If you don't, look it up sometime. Luke 4, Matthew 4. You're looking at me like I made it up. I remember... I remember... I remember... uh, (laughs) I remember uh, marrying somebody, and I was making reference about something. And I remember I said something that was scriptural, and they had this look on my face like, you're making that up. That's not true. You know, I just, sorry, I just digressed there. You kind of reminded me of that look. Look at this in Acts 10.38. Talking about the Spirit empowering Jesus. Remember what the Spirit does? He's, 
He's drawing people to Christ. Look at what Peter said to those gathered at Cornelius' house in Acts 10.38. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. So the Holy Spirit anointed and empowered Christ and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We have the witness of the Holy Spirit. You see, sometimes Christians, and maybe you have, and I have it in different days, question, have I committed the unpardonable sin? It is impossible for a Christian to commit the unpardonable sin. It is impossible. So if you're a Christian, you cannot commit the unpardonable sin because the unpardonable sin, now unless you do this, it would just verify you're not a Christian, the unpardonable sin is attributing the works of Jesus to the devil. That's what the unpardonable sin is. That was what the Pharisees did. They said he must be of Beelzebub. He must be of Satan because only he must be possessed by the devil to do these things. They were committing the unpardonable sin. Jesus always did the will of the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit as our witness, John 16, 14 Jesus said, he, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me, not himself. Now, going back to 1 John, you remember when we looked in chapter 3, verse 24, that this same Spirit says in verse 24, 1 John 3, 1 John 3, 24, that whoever keeps his commandments abides in him and he in them, and by this we know that he abides in us by how? The Spirit whom he has given us. The Holy Spirit works in conformity in working in our life, confirm, conforming and confirming that we are children of God. There's a fourth witness that we're going to call to the stand. We have the witness of the Father. Now, the Father's behind all this. You know, sometimes in a courtroom scene, uh, they'll talk about somebody coming in and he's the star witness, or she's the star witness. And everybody, when they walk up to that witness stand, they're holding their breath because they know the testimony they give is going to be damning. It's going to, you know, it's going to really just change the trial. Well, listen, the Father is the ultimate star witness here, okay? We have the witness of our Heavenly Father. Verse 9 and 10. Look at your, your scriptures. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has, been, that he has uh, born concerning his Son. Verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his son. The Apostle John uses uh, what we call the lesser to greater argument here. Give you an example. You remember when uh, Jesus in uh, one of the Gospels, Matthew 6, where he's talking about the care uh, of your Father in heaven and don't chase after material things like the Gentiles do because you're heavenly. Remember what he says? He, he uses the lesser to the greater by this. He says, if God takes care of the birds of the air, 
the flowers of the field, how much greater will he clothe you? Will he take care of you? That's the lesser to the greater. So how John uses this, he says just in everyday life, he says in in verse 9 and 10, he says in everyday life, we accept the testimony of men. You know, we believe them about what car we're going to buy, what house, whatever it is, we, we believe, there's ways that we ascertain and believe the testimony of, of people. I mentioned in Jewish life that the testimony of two or three witnesses was enough to confirm something to be true. So, so there we accept the word of, of just natural human beings. The point that John is making here in this witness of the Father, that if that is true, that we accept the fallible testimony of people as truth, you with me? How much greater should we believe and accept the very testimony of God himself? Now, this is quite uh, of a a big deal. This is quite serious. There's there's implications because the Bible says in in Hebrews 6.18 that it is impossible to, for God to lie. It is impossible for God to lie. John says that there's some serious implications for not believing God as a witness concerning who Christ is and what Christ has done in the believer's life. To not believe, to not believe God, to not believe the Father, his witness and testimony about his Son and salvation, according to verse 10, what does it say? It says, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him to be a what? It's saying God is a liar. That's pretty serious. To not, and I would even go further, to not, to reject Jesus Christ as God's one and only unique son and God's evaluation and God's prescription in sending Christ as our only hope of eternal life, to reject that, to reject God as witness, is saying, God, you are a liar. Wasn't that Satan's tactic in the garden? He may not have directly called God a liar or, or, or said that to Adam and Eve. But wasn't that behind his tactic to impugn the character of God? Hey, did God really say that? Really? Really? Come on. See, God's holding out on you because he knows that when you eat of that tree, and quit calling it an apple tree, it doesn't say an apple tree. And God knows when you eat of that tree, you'll be like him. See, he's just kind of, he doesn't want you to have what he has. He's holding out on you. He's not really somebody you can rely on. See, when we allow the lies of the enemy to call into question God's commitment and faithfulness over his blood-bought 
church, sheep, people, us. We're falling into that same pattern. And the subtleness of God is untruthful. God is a liar. Charles Spurgeon, it's not on the screen, but it's short. Just listen for a moment. Charles Spurgeon says this. God is to be believed if all men, or even if all men, contradict him. Let God be true and every man a liar. Spurgeon says, one word of God ought to sweep away 10,000 words of men. Whether they be philosophers of today or sages of antiquity or of yesterday. God's word is against them all. For he knows infallibly, he knows without error. Of his own son he knows as none else can. He knows of our condition before him. He knows the way to pardon. He knows. There is nothing in God. There is nothing in God that could lead him to cause or make error or to make a mistake. And it were blasphemy to suppose that God would ever mislead us. We have the reliable witness of God the Father God is true. Jesus said in John 5, 37, The Father who sent me has himself testified about me. I believe in Jesus, and therefore I believe in the Father's witness of Jesus. And when I'm saying I believe in the witness of Jesus, I'm believing in the full work of what Jesus did on the cross for my life. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about how do I get assurance There's a fifth witness. We have the witness, according to verse 10 again, the witness of our conversion. Verse 10, the witness of our conversion. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Has the testimony in himself. This is interesting. John connects... What we confess with our mouth, that what we confess is true with our mouth, God, through the Holy Spirit, makes real to our hearts. Our confession connects with our assurance. All right? I'll read you this familiar verse. It'll maybe help with Romans 10, 9 through 10. Because if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, see those two working, the confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe or trust, maybe more helpful in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. One more verse just to kind of build around that, Romans eight sixteen. It says the Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself testifies together, okay, with our spirit that we are the children of God. Look at the New Living Translation of this same verse. For, the, for his spirit joins with our spirit. You see capital S with our spirit, little s. For the Holy Spirit joins with our spirit to affirm or give us confidence that we are God's children. Children, it's not a decision card. 
It's not a decision card at a revival at Shot in the Arm Baptist Church in Hickory, North Carolina. When you, were, you, you walked the aisle because you got tired of singing just as I am 50 more times. And all your friends did it, and you walked the aisle, and you walked the aisle, and they gave you a New Testament, made you fill out a card, and somebody said, now, don't ever doubt your salvation. Now, I'm not saying the Holy Spirit doesn't use any of that, but that is not a basis of our assurance because I've got a little card, and I shook the preacher's hand when I went out the door. The assurance, and see, I cannot, except by expounding the Word of God, I can't give you that assurance that is something only the Holy Spirit confirms and affirms in the believer's life. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Practically, just what does the Holy Spirit of God do in that believer? Holy Spirit confirms with our hearts that this is true. Holy Spirit says, Tim, this is right. This is true. This is the way. This is real. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 11 and 12. Or verse 11. And this is the testimony that God has given us. He gave us eternal life and this life is in His Son. You see the... the, the testimony or this conversion, he connects this life, this eternal life with knowing Christ. No Jesus, no life. No Jesus, no hope of eternal life. The apostles in Acts 4, very beginning, out of the gate said, there is one name under heaven by which all must be saved. It is the name of Jesus Christ. Now, we don't like that in our, in our upside-down, confused culture where up is down and down is up. We don't like the exclusivity of, of that Jesus Christ is the singular way that the creator of the universe has given by which we can be reconciled to him. It's only through Christ. There's not multiple paths to God. That is not, I mean, you're free to believe that. But that is not the testimony of Scripture. And don't ever buy into anybody claiming to be Christian or confuse your own self that you're a Christian if you believe something contrary. Because I go back that if you contradict the witness of God, the Father, you in essence are saying, God, you lie about that way. I know a better way. I know something that you're not telling me. Holy Spirit says, yes, Tim. This is all true. Yes, Tim. This is the word of God. Yes, Tim. I like the yes of the Holy Spirit, don't you? Because we live in such a, as I said, we live in such a confused Everything is upside down. Everything is questioned. People don't even know their gender anymore. Well, you know, I know we, it is, it's sad. I was listening to a message by John MacArthur 
this weekend. I may put the link on Facebook. I encourage you to listen to it. He was preaching up in Orlando and had opportunity to go up there Thursday. And, and he said the world has lost their minds. He said people ask me, uh, are we moving into judgment? He says we've already, we're already in judgment. We are living Romans 1, my friend, right now. You want to know the condition of this nation? Read Romans 1. We are there and we have been there for some time. Even though the truth, the witness of God is clear in the creation. As I said, Romans 1.18. Sinful human beings suppress. You know when I hear the word suppress, you know what I think of? Remember the little toy, the little jack-in-the-box where you... And you what you'd have to suppress that little clown and, and close the lid, right? You had to suppress you had to hold it down. Or sometimes I think when maybe I was little before I got spanked for doing this, or my kids, when you know you put your fingers in your ear and you just say da 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 da, you know, because you don't want to hear what somebody's saying. You're suppressing the truth. Our culture is running around with fingers firmly planted in their ears. They do not want to hear the truth. I made reference to this a little bit, but I think it's just worth noting that when John, in, in, this, in this witness here, in providing and giving confidence in this testimony and witness of the Spirit, or in our conversion, rather, Witness number five. He does not point them back to some prior experience. What he does do, and I think this is helpful to us, he leads us not to look backward at something we did in the past. He's saying, look now, today, right now. Is this present living testimony real right now in your life? Who are you trusting today? Who are you believing today? Is it Christ alone? Yes. Then be assured that you belong to him. I'm not saying that it's not helpful to know the exact moment when you profess Jesus Christ. I believe I do, but it didn't stop there. That can be helpful, but it's a present day, living, vibrant, living, breathing testimony of Jesus that I'm trusting totally in Christ, in Christ alone. Look at verse 11, and I just kind of personalize this, all right? And this is my testimony right now that God gave me eternal life and my life is in his son. That's a present testimony. And finally, the sixth witness enters the courtroom. And the sixth witness is we have the witness of eternal life. Against verse 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us. Notice, again, he's writing to believers. Past tense. Something already done, something already established. He has, he gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. 
Don't miss that connection between having the Son and having the life, as I mentioned earlier. To not have Christ, to not have the Son of God, is not to have eternal life. You or anybody who is not in Christ, they are the walking dead. Not that crazy show. You want to know The Walking Dead, which I can say with great pride, I have never watched one episode, okay? Now, don't tell me if you do. I'll think less of you if you're obsessed by it. Just let that be between you and God, okay? No, I'm kidding. The Bible says that those who are not in Christ, it isn't that they're, just, they're sick, they're downcast. The Bible says that we are dead. We are dead. No life is we have death. To die is to cease, for life to cease in us. You know, we talk about the inspiration of the Bible. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is, the King James says, inspired, but if you have the ESV or the NIV, it literally reads what the Greek means, is that all Scripture is God-breathed. What did he do with that lump of clay that, he, that was named Adam? It was a lump of clay until what? God inspired him. And when somebody dies, the coroner writes on there the date they expired, that life left them. When we, when we receive Jesus Christ into our hearts, if you will, that what we thought was unlovely, became lovely. The beauty of Christ, our affections were changed. How did all that happen? Because we read a book? Because we heard a sermon? Those may have been the means, but what, what, and how it happened is because God <sighs> breathed life into this corpse. I didn't do that. You didn't do that if you're a believer. That's a miracle of God. That is a miracle of God. For by grace you have been saved. It's not of yourself. Remember what Colossians 2, 13 says that when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive. When you were dead, he's writing to believers. When you were dead, God made you alive. Let me read you just one short quote and we'll be done. James Montgomery Boyce, B-O-I-C-E. That's a name you ought, to, you ought to know. He's in heaven now. Was a was a great preacher. First Presbyterian, or I'm sorry, not First Presbyterian, 10th Presbyterian. You know, it's a Presbyterian town when there's a 10th Presbyterian. It's in Philadelphia. James Montgomery Boyce writes in his commentary on this. He says, John's reference to eternal life, listen to me, don't check out reading a quote. John's reference to eternal life as the essence of salvation carries us back to the opening verses of the letter in which he wrote that this life was revealed in Jesus who is himself the life. Remember Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and what? Yeah. Eternal life, Boyce says, listen, eternal life is not merely 
unending life. It is the very life of God. What we are promised in Christ is a participation in the life of the one, Jesus, who bears this testimony. This life is not to be enjoyed by everyone, however. This life is in Christ. Consequently, it is, it is as impossible to have life without having Christ as it is impossible to have Christ without at the same time possessing eternal life. To have Christ it is to have eternal life. That's why we say receive Christ. Come to Christ. Come to Jesus. He will not reject you. You see, the Bible teaches... That we don't have to hope, I hope, I hope, I hope so. Do you have eternal life? Do you know you're going to heaven? Do you know you belong to God? Well, I hope so. I hope so. You don't have to hope so. You can know so. Well, that's arrogant. No, it's no more arrogant than having six witnesses in a courtroom and saying, I believe what they're saying. Now, the difference between you or between a human jury and this picture of a jury, if there is one, uh, the court of heaven is not waiting on us to give a guilty or non-guilty verdict. The verdict <laughs> is fixed. The verdict is already in. The question is, what is the verdict of me? Witnesses to who? Witnesses to me, of what God has done. I can know. You see, it, it is only the eternal Son of Jesus Christ that can give eternal life. That's the reason the truthfulness, the veracity, the, 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 the details of who Christ is are a big deal. And that's why it matters when we say we believe in Jesus, is the Jesus that you're putting your hope and confidence and trust in, the Jesus that has been clearly revealed in Scripture, that the witnesses are without contradiction, that this is the Son of God. 